Podcast for the Working Cowboy. Well, howdy there, Daylight Burners. Happy Monday. Hope your weekend treated you good. Um, yeah, I uh, I had a good weekend. Can't complain too much. It's it wasn't warm, but we had uh, we had some sunny weather and uh, and. Sh- and uh, shit's kind of starting to dry out, so that's that's helpful. It's uh, it I don't know makes it makes uh makes a guy in a better mood when when the weather's nice, you know. Just uh, it just helps out a little bit. Everybody has a seems to have a little bit better outlook on life when when the sun's shining. So, anyways, I've been uh. I've been thinking about this this series that I want to do for a while, and, and the good thing is uh, I can go as as deep into it as I want, um, and and it could be a long long series, but I don't think it needs to be. I <laughs> I'm going to cover a couple different periods of it, but um, all in all, I think the the main the main point I want to get across on this look at the the history of the meat packing industry in the U S is, uh, America was truly built on, on beef and <clears throat> it was, uh, like some of our biggest cities and, and uh, and, and it also kind of gives you a little window into the future, uh, of some of the, some of these meat packing towns that, uh, they're kind of little podunk, no nowhere towns. But if you look at at the the traditional meat packing centers of of the United States, they all kind of started as little podunk, uh, nowhere towns. And uh, turns out that people just really like beef. It's uh, it's a good way to uh, to get good protein, but also, uh, from an economic, uh, and efficiency standpoint, how in a time of war, the, the beef cattle provides you with the most amount of meat <clears throat> than, than, um, but, you know, there's Buffalo and whatnot. They, they, it's one, I, I'd, maybe I'll, uh, I'll look into that during, during this, uh, this whole process when we, we move forward into a different, episode in the series but it makes you wonder why they they eh, I, I don't know um the buffalo buffalo also has a lot of meat uh compared to the to the relative relative size they're they're big animals uh a cow and a buffalo uh the cow in particular but they also have a, a, like a ton of muscle on them there, there's a lot of meat on, on a beef cow and and a buffalo's not 
not too uh, different from that, I, I, I would imagine. I, I don't know what the yield you get on your average bison carcass. But um, anyhow, so if you look at some of these... Um, some of these different centers throughout uh, history, they they kind of sprang up because they were providing meat to a war effort, and <clears throat> and and actually, kind of most of them in uh, in the eighteen hundreds and the early nineteen hundreds, and then um, technology changed and and it kind of kind of decentralized the. Well, and not even decentralized, did it? it? It moved them to a different centralized location. But uh, the story of the meatpacking industry has always been one of uh, monopolization and started out as a bunch of whole different, um, you know, smaller different entities. And then they eventually consolidated into <coughs> into these these giant conglomerates, which we we see now and um and what we saw in the in the late 1800s when when we finally when when the first antitrust type uh legislation went through to to break up monopolies and the meatpacking industry was one of the was only one leg of that deal i mean there was the oil there was the mining um there there's any number during the, the gilded age that that produced these uh type of monopolies but the meatpacking industry kind of you know it hits near and dear because uh we raise the animals that that go through it <coughs> but we we get we're pretty disconnected here here in the rural world and and for i guess for good reason you know we're when you when you grow food for others, you typically have um, a pretty close relationship with uh, the whole circle of life. You you uh, you raise your plants and your animals to be consumed by <coughs> by other animals, and and a lot of times that meant you you know you butchered your own uh, your own animals. You 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 or you slaughtered your own animals. You butchered your own meat. To, to get by and then the the excess you know whether whether it be animals or, or meat whatever you you sold and that that's that's kind of how you made your living but you you provided for your family first with uh with, with your crops whether whether it be uh livestock or <coughs> or a plant you know wheat uh produce whatever it is but you're you're very keenly aware of where your food comes from and how 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 to get it and what the the work that goes into it um you know you're very in touch with that and then when you sell that off there there becomes a little bit of a disconnect from from the producer to the buyer and the buyer needs knows they need it they need food but they a lot of times they don't understand what goes on and uh and a lot of times they don't I feel like well, most of us here in in the agricultural world feel like they don't have the the correct amount of respect for what goes into putting that on their plate, and I and I agree with that a lot. But who's to blame for that? That's a that's a story 
an argument for a different day, but there's uh, and and this is just going from kind of a oh, about a well, I've been at it about two hours, a little over two hours of of looking in into the the history of the meat packing industry and just this you know considered an intro episode, um, <clears throat> but there's there's a pretty clear pattern of of how these these packing industries come about. First of all, it comes from influx of population. So in order for the meat packing industry to thrive and, and not just be, you know, a bunch of people butchering their own beef or, you know, like small, small, like community-based uh, slaughterhouses, there has to be another industry that, uh, <clears throat> unless... Um, well, e even so, there has to be another industry driving this huge demand for, for beef in particular. This is, uh, you know, I'm going to, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of throw pork in there. Um, poultry is, uh, is a whole different animal in and of itself. That could be a whole, a whole different series, uh, apart from the, now yeah, we'll even get into the, to the lamb a little bit, but, uh, the two big ones are pork and, and beef. That's, uh, and throughout the, the history of it, it started, you know, 1662, I believe was the first one. Oh, what was that fella's name? William Pinchon, P-Y-N-C-H-O-N, Pinchon, Pinchon, uh, he's, he's a, he's a Brit, so it wouldn't be Pinchon, it'd be Pinchon, um, I guess he died in, in 1662. But he essentially was is kind of credited with the the godfather, if you will, of of the American meatpacking industry. Um he was a fur trader and just an overall kind of entrepreneur business had a had a sense for business. And he he was credited with uh kind of the founder godfather of the American meat packing industry when he started processing a bunch of pigs and salting them and smoking them and, and exporting it to the, to the West Indies. So the Caribbean area to be, to be used down on those sugar plantations and whatnot. And, and that all, uh, that all happened at Springfield, Massachusetts. And, and, Let's see, he he was he was born in 1590 and he was and died 1662 so he's 72 years old uh i would imagine the bulk of his his deal was in like that 1620 area 1620 to probably 1640 because it said he he retired to england at some point a wealthy man 1640 i guess is uh is when springfield was officially renamed uh, so he was right on the edge of Massachusetts and Connecticut. I'm not sure how that works in the map. Those, those states are like this big. I guess they were big land masses at the time, but, um, yeah, there, I think my, my home County, Baca County maybe has 5,000 people in it. Maybe, um, 
It's uh, roughly the size. Just the county is the size of the state of Connecticut. So he uh, he had settled and, and made this uh, this little trading post on the on the edge of Massachusetts and Connecticut. And it's funny is because of uh, the laws in and and how they they did their economics in Massachusetts Bay Colony. That's he uh, he eventually annexed his his land into the Massachusetts Bay as opposed to the Connecticut colony it was and it was because it was a more of a free market approach in the Massachusetts Bay so um one of the earlier um earliest accounts of like a a guy just voting with his feet here in in America it's like nah it's the, it's the the great part about America is like if you don't like how this particular state does something, there's a lot of other places to choose from, and you can just pick up and go. Um, the The amount of, of wealth you have before you leave kind of plays a big factor into where you go and how, how successful you'll be when you get there. But the fact remains is, like, if you have the will, you can just up and go go somewhere and back then where you could just like ah we're not part of you anymore fuck you connecticut we're part of massachusetts bay colony now and and a lot of that had to do with with how how the economics ran but anyway he (coughs) he set up um one of the one of the or i guess the first meatpacking um firm in in the united states where like he that was their business, and and they exported a bunch of salt pork to to the West Indies, and then you uh, you fast forward to the time of the revolution, and uh, let's see, let me find that. And Boston, Boston, and and then later Philadelphia became <coughs> kind of the the hub of the, the meat packing industry in, in the United States or in the colonies at the time, but, uh, Brighton cattle market, uh, was, was in Boston founded in mid 1776. So you, you could honestly say that beef is more American than apple pie. I don't, I don't ever recall hearing about an apple pie market in Boston, but, Brighton Cattle Market was founded in mid-1776 when Jonathan Winship, uh, first and second, father and son, put out a call to the farmers of Middlesex County urging them to slaughter their cattle and send them the uh, resulting meat supply to the village of Little Cambridge, um, later named Brighton, to help provision General Washington's soldiers. So when I was... I mentioned it briefly before, but... Some of the biggest booms in the meatpacking industry came around war because <coughs> fighting is is the ultimate thing that you do. Yeah, that's what brings it into to a war is is the is the fight. But in order to keep up the fight, you have to feed an army, and most of the the men that comprise your army are guys that would normally be out there raising the food, processing the food, shipping the food, the Teamsters, all, all of that, your truck drivers, just your skilled 
your your average like laborer is who gets thrown into the army when when war comes about. Uh, <clears throat> and because of that, you 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 have to find a way to feed them. And and one of the ways that America has has been able to build their you know status as a world power is not just be being the one of the most powerful or the now the most powerful military in the world uh, not not even close second but uh there for a while we were one of the the premier military powers in the world but also like we were one of the premier agriculture countries in the world we still are but less and less of a focus is being uh put on that but it was not only our weapons and men that helped uh, turn the tide of World War One, but it was also the the fact that we were able to supply food to to these countries that were fighting World War One, while you know while we were <clears throat> we were sitting back, we were we were making all the shit for them to to win, but also we were feeding their army, and that that's the if you don't if you don't have food for your army, you don't have an army. Eventually, that that army just falls in on itself and they desert or they just they starve to death and so and it's it's one of the reasons why why the north was able to win the civil war we'll get into that uh a little bit later but here we, we'll go back to to brighton cattle industry so this is the brighton cattle market um so British had just evacuated uh, Boston and the Army of New England, which was then headquartered in and around the Liberated City, was in desperate need of provisions of all kind. The Winship family, who held a contract from the U.S. government to supply meat for the Army, soon realized that there's more money to be made from doing the slaughtering themselves, uh, which, of course, necessitated the establishment of a local slaughterhouse. So... You got you got all these fighting men. They're they're fighting their ass off. They just uh, liberated Boston, and if I remember right, that Boston gets recaptured later on. But <clears throat> they got to find a way to feed these. So like they ju- they just uh, kick the British out of the city. But they can only hold it as long as uh, the the army holds up. And for the army to hold up, they got to be well fed or at least decently enough fed. To, to keep fighting. Uh, the cattle and slaughtering trades launched in 1776 quickly reformed the, the sleepy agricultural village of Little Cambridge into a thriving commercial center. The selling and butchering of cattle became the economic mainstay of the town for more than a century, uh, providing uh, uh, profoundly influencing virtually every aspect of Brighton's social, political, and uh, economic, political, and social development. Um, and that, that's the, that's kind of the, the pattern throughout, if you look at all, um, all of these, these packets. So Cincinnati, one, one that maybe you don't think of quite as much, but it used to be called Porkopolis because, uh, they, they were right on the Ohio river, um, and they had access into New England and the Appalachian region. They had good farm ground, and they had a lot of hogs. And then they set up these plants there, and it was, you know, at the, I guess, kind of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And things started to speed up. Like, 
the more technology increased, I mean, you'd like that. They, they always give, um, Eli Whitney, the, the credit for kind of spurring the industrial revolution here in, in the United States. And that's, that's a fair, fair assessment. But I, I really think that the, the packing meat packing industry doesn't get enough credit. And as, as a cowboy, you know, aspiring rancher and, uh, and whatnot, I, I understand how, how nasty the meat packing business is. And like, they're, they're not great people. Um, and I don't know if they ever have been, but when you when you come when you just sit back and look at it, it's a it, it's a really impressive deal what they've been able to do, what we've been able to do here in the United States with uh, <coughs> with, with uh, the 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 production of meat, and it's all spurred from a strong meat packing industry. So, without the meat packing industry that we have. Uh, that you know that has grown to what it is today we don't have the cattle industry that that has grown to what it is today it's a very symbiotic re- uh, relationship and and with that like there's there's a lot of competing interests and and we see that over the years and and essentially and and as much as bill bullard didn't want to admit it these trade associations are essentially unions uh where you you don't have you know, factory employees as members, but you have ranchers as, as members. Uh, and so even though they may have a, a, a different legal distinction and, and what they can do, essentially the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, RCAF, U.S. Cattlemen's Association, they're essentially different unions for the rancher. Um, and, and, and it's really, really funny uh, and, and interesting how all those all those different characters intertwine and but at the end of the day it's a very very symbiotic relationship uh, without the without the rancher the packers are not in business um, that could be changing with the with the advent of this uh, lab grown meat shit who knows that but in the meantime without the cattle there is no packer. Also, without the packer, the cattle uh, don't have anywhere to go, <coughs> and and so like both sides have have to rely upon each other, and it's once you get into that industrialized um, model where where like you're 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 operating at scale, it's a it's a lot harder for like your average worker to have any power and, and your average rancher to have any power. Like once you sell those cattle, like you don't have any control of what happens to them after that. Unless, unless you have it in, in your contract, you you don't, you don't have much say, you know? And, and that's where the trade associations come in. That's where the, the labor unions come in. And there's, there's a very rich history of all of, all of the labor movement and, uh, <coughs> And the war, you know, with the range wars, and all the way now to where the we're we're kind of we're kind of at the same point in a in an economic standpoint. We're like we're we're kind of in the same situation as they were back in the the like late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds with the the big four packers. Now we or big five. Now we got big four, and. 
it, it's just it's funny and interesting to to just follow the follow the path of this whole this whole combined industry and and when you compare that with uh with, with different other industries i think the one that really comes closest to mirroring uh being a mirror image or like not 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 mirror image but like uh being the the most similar is is the energy industry uh because it's <clears throat> it, it's uh it, it's kind of a life and life and death death type deal eventually it's uh whoever controls the food whoever controls the industry they they control the people that's 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 how that's how it pans out and whether there's a sinister sinister plot uh at the top of it um it's kind of it's a compelling argument to think that there is but whether that's true or not it that's how it, how it plays out if if you don't if you don't have energy and you don't have food you don't have much going for you so it's uh and it's funny how the the rise and fall of all these urban centers a lot of them are are not just uh you know it there there's a lot of factors that that go into play with the location and like waterways roads whatever uh ports but <coughs> for whatever reason it made them a good place of uh, of business they they were kind of built on the back of of beef cattle like and some to to a lesser extent pork uh, and and regional variety for sure the new england states were were a lot more known for their cattle than the southern states where they were known for pork and then the the western states were were built on on the beef cow which was driven by demand from from the northeastern states, <clears throat> and it all it all it was all kind of built on the back of of the beef cow. And um, if if you look like there's a meat packing district in in most of your major cities, but like New York is a is a is a huge shining example. And uh, I didn't look look up too much in the in San Francisco, but I bet it's, it's kind of right along the same, same lines, but new, New York is a, is a place known for importing and exporting a lot of stuff. They're right there on the coast. Uh, they're, they're known to be a center of commerce, but also New York state's been, is known for agriculture. Um, not like if you're not from there in the new England area, I guess you probably don't know as much about it. Uh, I know I didn't, but yeah, uh, once you get outside of New York City, and uh, and then you know you get your your main urban areas in within New York, you got Albany and Buffalo and whatnot, and they're they're industrial towns. But the rest of the state is agriculture, uh, and that that goes uh, goes to say for for most of every other state in the country. There's uh, even even the little bitty states like uh, like New Jersey, New uh, Massachusetts. Um, I don't know so much about Connecticut. I think they're mostly urban, but I, I would bet you once you get off the beaten path a little bit, there's there's some farm country and even in Connecticut. And so, like all these all these states have their have their urban areas, and then they have uh, everything else that supplies the urban area. Even even going way back when, 
so New York was uh, was the obvious place to to ship all your stuff out, being on the coast and also at the you know, you had the East River and the Hudson River and I think there's another one there. I'm not for sure, but but at least those the the two big rivers as well as the Atlantic Ocean. Like it's a it's a perfect place to 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 buy, sell and trade shit. And you had this whole area of New York City that it was always known as a trading post, but as and I think New York more so in during the Civil War as opposed to Boston during the Revolutionary War, um, New York became um, kind of a meatpacking hub because they're supplying food to the, tr- the the Union troops during the Civil War. And at one point, the meatpacking district, and it's uh, it's only, I don't know, a handful of city blocks. I, I forget exactly what the the distance is, but there was 250 meatpacking plants uh, and slaughterhouses all in this little area. And the funny thing about, uh, the meatpacking industry is it, uh, it's not very glamorous. And, uh, as we get further into this, this series, we'll, uh, we'll delve into like the jungle by Upton Sinclair. And, uh, and some of the just like heinous conditions that that used to be in these these early meat packing and meat packing plants, and even even through today, like if you, if you uh, if you follow some headlines, especially here here recently, there's been several headlines of these uh, these contractor companies that that come in and uh, and clean the plants, employing some very very young people like uh, sometimes young as like 12 years old which i don't necessarily have a problem with but if if i was sending my kid to go wash out one of these these huge packing plants in and say garden city or amarillo or or Greeley, wherever if i was to allow my kid to go get a job doing that like man i i would uh, i'd be locked up for for child labor laws, but if you just import them from Guatemala and uh, and they don't technically work for the packing plant themselves, they're contract uh, contract labor. Well, maybe they you know people turn a, a blind eye, and so there's been several instances of that. But that's always been the case uh, throughout the history of this country. Is the the people that by and large, the people that work at these these packing plants are low skilled immigrant labor, like first generation. Um, you know, back in the day, it was Irish and Italian and German and Scandinavian uh, immigrants, and then that later uh, translated to the black. Uh, <coughs> they weren't necessarily immigrants, but they were migrants moving from the south into the the Midwest and the and the north to these these. Uh, industrial cities and then uh, from there it went from like Mexico Guatemala Honduras and then um, like Garden City Kansas got a a pretty strong Vietnamese population because they they came over to work in the packing plants and now if you live in one of the in or near one of these packing towns there's a lot of Somalian immigrants uh, (laughs) and it's all um and all all of these people typically come from kind of war torn areas. Like back in the in the day, there was there was war throughout all the papal states, which is now uh, Italy, um, 
Prussia and France and England and Germany, which, well, Prussia is, essentially became Germany. Uh, all throughout the 1800s, constant warfare through there and led to a lot of refugees. Uh, Russia, you know, Russia and German always had a, like a disputed border. Uh, not so much in the, in the 20th century, which, well, uh, we'll see here see here soon um also part of the reason i i bring this up because there's a there's a big war looming on the horizon and man we we don't know what like government intervention is just quite yet we got a got a little taste of it with uh with covid but when you go into like world war ii and when you go into war rationings and uh it damn near that with you know the war the the depression the dust bowl all all of that compounded like it almost broke the beef industry in the in the u.s and it it damn near did break the the sheep industry um particularly we sent so much uh, mutton over to the troops in europe and and uh, and the pacific during world war ii that the the fighting men just got tired of eating the shit and uh and a lot of them came home and they they never ate another bite of lamb in their life and uh and that had a huge profound impact on on the the sheep industry here in the united states and and all all of it's all intertwined and and then you you add the like the immigrant labor particularly coming over from europe back in the day like uh you know Marxism and socialism and all spawned in Germany. Um, <clears throat> but it spread throughout Europe and with, with good reason, when you, when you look at the, the working conditions back, back in those days, it was, uh, it was not hard to see why your average, uh, factory worker, um, meat pack and plant worker, uh, steel mill worker, um, whatever in in wherever you worked in these industrial uh in environments um you were routinely taken advantage of um you look at the like the the company towns in in the coal mining um sector just <laughs> the the company owned anything and everything and you didn't even get paid in real money. You got paid in company script, which only could be used at the company store and to pay your rent for the company house that you lived in and uh, to pay the tuition at the company school that your kids went to. And yeah, and then if you if you even thought about um, asking for better conditions, they just fired you. And um, when they fired you, they kicked you out of your house. They uh, They took all the all the company owned stuff. And by the way, you were in the middle of fucking West Virginia and it was like a three days walk to the nearest city. So good luck. And, uh, think about that next time you want to speak up. Hey, look, I know you're, you're enjoying this show that we're, you know, that we're balls deep in here, but I got to pay some bills around here, and this company, Bubs Naturals, they are helping me do so, and they also sell a lot of good stuff, so you go to bubsnaturals.com, it's named after Glenn Bub Doherty, uh, who was a, he was a special operator, CIA guy, uh, was one of the, one of the guys that was killed in 
during the Benghazi raid. Uh, his best friend started up this company kind of in honor of him. They're both uh, <coughs> very active guys, and they wanted just good, clean supplements, and that's what these are. Uh, I take the, the collagen in my coffee along with MCT oil. It's a powder, uh, kind of very, very slightly sweet, um, like very faint sweet taste to it but also got a kind of a creamy texture it's good stuff they also have coffee now i haven't tried it yet uh, might have to and um looks like maybe they got some uh some like gatorade type mix but uh, it's all it's all good clean stuff uh, apple cider vinegar gummies which are awesome apple cider vinegar is great for you uh collagen supposed to uh, what what do they say on this let's let's take a look um, it fuels the body while replenishing with replenishing amino acids that turn back the clock on an aging. Um, and it's, uh, it's supposed to be good for your skin and your joints and, uh, your hair, your nails, all, all the good stuff. Um, it's, yeah, just a scoop in your coffee. It's flavorless. Don't taste it at all. And, uh, and it just, uh, I th- it's good for inflammation and all sorts of good stuff. Um, all in all, these guys pay me pretty well when you guys buy stuff. So please do, and I, I highly recommend their products. Uh, I, Like I said, I, I take them every day. Got this stuff on order. Um, got this stuff on order. And uh, and the gummies I've got coming every, every couple of weeks. Uh, help me kind of stay halfway young. I know my hair doesn't look it, but I'm, I'm not that old yet. So uh, And I want to be able to to wrestle around with my kids and beat them for a long time yet. So, um, like I want to dominate them so they know that I'm, I'm the alpha. And, uh, so I'm doing all, all I can to, <coughs> to kind of help <coughs> stay one step ahead of those little fuckers. And Bub's Naturals, uh, does it for me. <coughs> helps, helps get me there. So anyways, go to bubsnaturals.com. Use the promo code burning daylight. That's all one word. Uh, you'll get 20% off, uh, your order, and I will get a commission on that. So, uh, thanks to Bubs Naturals. Go check out their stuff. I think you'll like it, and uh, I know I do. So, uh, bubsnaturals.com, promo code burning daylight for 20%. Now, we can go ahead, get back in to the show. Howdy there. I'm Matt McKinley with the Burning Daylight Podcast. If you ever wanted to make a podcast, well, Spotify's got a platform that makes that lets you make one super easily. And then you can distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for, for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from the phone or computer. Uh, so no matter what uh, your setup was like, you can uh, start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. And uh, if you like my show, Fence Post Politics with my buddy Aaron, that's the place to watch it because it's all video all the time. And we uh, like we share videos, we comment on videos, we share news articles and uh, and funny memes. So um, it's pretty cool. Um and also, if you want to take your conversations to, uh, with your fans to the next level, uh, your question and answer, answer and polls are the best way to get them talking. You can attach that to your, your podcast there. 
and, and you get your you get you know valuable interactions with your fan your fans and uh <clears throat> with spotify for podcasters you can earn money in a variety of ways including ads and podcast subscriptions and best of all it's totally free with no catch and that's uh that that is true um <laughs> supposed to do a testimonial here um but anyways this is the the podcast i use or the podcast uh host that i use i like spotify they're uh they're very good on just letting you do your thing uh with uh with no catch to it uh there's a good reason why joe rogan hosts podcasts on spotify and, and this is uh this is a great way to get started if you if you've ever thought about starting a podcast this is where i would send anybody to go um <coughs> Best thing you can do is just download the Spotify for Podcasters app, or you can go to Spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. And yeah, if you've ever thought about just doing a podcast, or if you're tired of paying a monthly service that uh, doesn't seem to do much for you, Spotify Podcasters is your spot. So uh, go to Spotify.com slash podcasters or download the app today. And so it was not real hard to see why socialism, Marxism uh, really took hold in, in Europe and then, then later in these, not even, not even just the urban centers, but like, uh, like I said, West Virginia, um, all throughout the, the Rust Belt of, of the Appalachian region and, and the, these packing towns uh, throughout the Midwest. It was, uh, <coughs> it was, uh, it was it was just i guess a continuation of the the old class struggle but uh with with little different circumstances instead of uh you know lords and serfs and and uh and kings and whatnot you had the government but you had you had the the giant companies uh i don't know at the time that if they were uh they weren't they weren't necessarily co- necessarily corporations but they were considered they were organized as trusts um, and it vertically integrated the industry, you know, like the, like the, the railroad industry, the, the steamer, the steam line in, uh, industry, um, the packing plant industry. And then the, the more technology, uh, grew and, and the more these, these companies became intertwined with government, like the more and more you had the the growth of these monopolies and it, and it's happened over and over and over throughout the years um but it seems like uh, it seems like maybe the packing industry is uh one of the only one, only one of those industries that keeps getting uh put at the forefront of it over and over again but it's one of those things that it's one of those industries that no matter how much it changes and technology increases, people still have to eat. So they're always there. And so like they, they might, they may get hit with uh, some antitrust stuff and, you know, they get broke up a little bit and blah, blah, but they, they always come back and uh, they'll, they'll find, uh, you'll, you'll find out like a war 
is a good way for them to, to really sink their claws back in and, and uh, start building back towards, uh, you know, an oligopoly, a monopoly, whatever you want to call it, but centralizing stuff. <clears throat> and, and, it, and it seems like it never fails. Uh, whenever you've got to feed a, a large amount of men that, that can't produce for themselves because they're fighting other men who can't produce for themselves, uh, at the time being, um, that, that's when you get a lot of, you get a lot of consolidation and, uh, and you see these, these big, like start to emerge or they, they consolidate even more power. And I think we're, we're on the verge of that now. And so it's, it's kind of funny to me that garden city, Kansas may be a booming metropolis here within like the next 20, 10, 20 years. You know, like it's, a, it's, it's not an ideal place for a city really, but it's a really ideal place for a packing plant. It's, uh, you know, you got highway 50, you got whatever the high, the other highway is like a big, big junction of highway, highway 87. Um, there, there's a junction there and you're not, you're kind of, Midway between, say, I forty and I seventy, um, you're, it's it's kind of conveniently located. So it's even though it's a little bit off the beaten path, it's not very far to to major thoroughfares, and you got a lot of cattle, and and it's already established there. If they keep building, and man, the the amount that Garden City has grown in my lifetime is is pretty tremendous. Like it, it's kind of a, it's, it's well on its way to being like a, like a small to mid-sized city. I mean, I don't know how many people they have there now, but it, like it just keeps growing and you can see it. You could see it growing even more just the way, the way the consolidation of the packing industry happens. And it, it's, uh, it's a really crazy story when you when you start to to get into to all the the little details and how everything grew like from from Cincinnati well from Boston and Philadelphia being the hubs New York being another hub and then then branching as the country moved farther west and how uh, <coughs> uh we're here I had one here uh, the first cattle drive. In, in the U in the U S was um, was in 1779. Um, came all the way from Texas uh, in 1776. American colonists declared their independence from Great Britain, and the American Revolution began. It was well known that France came to the aid of the American colonists in their fight against the British. Less well-known is Spain's involvement in the American Revolution and how it led to the first Texas cattle drive. Um, Great Britain's land. Um, eager to reclaim their land and push the British out, Spain, Spain eventually officially joined the American Revolution in 1779. That year, the Spanish governor of Louisiana, Bernardo de Galvez, supported the Americans by sending 2,000 barrels of gunpowder and lead Clothing to George Washington, he also, um, to feed the span. Okay, so he also engaged troops uh, 
he and his troops engage the British armies in battles from Baton Rouge to the Bahamas. To feed the Spanish troops engaged in the American Revolution, Galvez asked for support from the neighboring Texas in form of Texas cattle. In these letters from 1779, the commanding general of New Spain gives permission to drive 2,000 head of cattle from Texas to Louisiana. Uh, records indicate the cattle were purchased from ranches connected to missions, but there's no evidence that the cattle arrived in Louisiana. Uh, so whether the, the, the cattle drive actually happened, um, the Spanish government still put out the order for it. And <clears throat> it, it, it just, it's funny, like I said, when you've got to feed a large amount of people, um, cattle's kind of the way to go to it. And, and all, all these, all these hubs were based around feeding a new population. And, and they eventually, they, they migrated from, from the East coast to, to more of the, the center of the country where there was a lot, a lot better ground to, to grow these, grow these animals and then, you know, get them to the railhead. And then eventually like that, that part didn't even come to matter because now you can take a semi way up the top of a fucking mountain. And, uh, as long as you got a set of corrals there or a place where you can put some portable corrals and you get, you can get cattle there and you can get the truck in there. You can ship them right out. And within, you know, sometime depends on how far you're going, but, um, Usually within a couple of days, at the maximum, you can get them to 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 slaughter wherever you want to, um, and, and that's that, or, or to the feedlot, uh, and and then leaving the leaving the plant, they can get them get these animals processed down to where they fit in a in a cube of a box, and then on a refrigerated truck they can go anywhere and then you know even from there you can go from the middle of the country to a port uh you know whether the gulf of mexico the pacific or or the atlantic but you can you can drive a ship from garden or drive a truck from garden city kansas to any one of those those locations and put it in a shipping container you know refrigerated shipping container and ship it anywhere in the world nowadays and that was something you couldn't do before and, and how that all has played out today is kind of it's kind of fascinating and when when you see when you see this big gear up for war you you kind of have to look at where where the packing industry is located and it's like Amarillo, Texas, uh <coughs> Western Colorado, Eastern Kansas, Nebraska, and you, I wouldn't be surprised to see a even bigger influx of immigrant labor because who works at the packing plants? A bunch of poor immigrants. That's how, that's how it always works. It seems like there's, uh, I don't know. Like if, if anybody knows, uh, you know, your average white dude or, or gal that, that works at a packing plant anymore, uh, let me know. Because I'm sure there's a few of you out there, but not many. It's kind of like working at a dairy. Like, if you're, if you're a white dude working at a dairy, you're probably in management somewhere. You ain't, you ain't uh, you know, working the milking parlor. And <clears throat> there's, 
I don't know. I guess long story short, before there was a, another, there was another couple stories I wanted to to highlight, but I think they fit, they fit off fit in better at a in a later episode. But it's just it's really really interesting how it all plays together and and when you look at all the struggles between the different characters involved whether it's the you know the your assembly line worker which it originally was called the d assembly line because you were taking a full carcass and de-assembling it uh that's the the motivation for henry ford to create his assembly line uh in the motor industry, uh, you know, in the the automobile industry. He took his his inspiration from the packing plants and how everybody had a stationary job and you just worked on products as they came by you. So, like, if if your job was to to cut this steak, you just waited until the chunk of meat came to you and then you cut it. And then the next one came and you just... And that was your job all day long. And... And it was a very efficient process, and he took uh, he took note of that and created the the assembly line automobile plant, which revolutionized a whole no- whole different industry. And it, it just I, I guess at the end of the day, it it goes back to show you that <sighs> no matter how removed we get from our our food as as a as a country and as a culture this this whole country was built on the back of beef and it will be for the foreseeable future so um when you hear these guys talking about like these incredible prices coming up on on cattle and how low we are on numbers like yeah it's a concern it is a concern but it seems like this was a pretty good winner so like if you got a chance to restock probably better do it um i think uh i think there's there's a chance to maybe get ahead a little bit it'll be these coming years because cattle prices are gonna be <coughs> gonna be pretty high and i bet the demand's gonna be right there because knock on wood i hope i'm wrong but i think we're going to war and uh we're going to be sending a lot of beef products over, over to troops, uh, whether, whether they're ours or, or, you know, another, you know, allied army, I don't know what, or, or both, but there's going to be demand for it. And like I had spoke before on, on, you know, investing in defense contractor stocks and uh getting jobs uh at a at a, you know at a bomb factory or whatever i think the same thing can go to say for for having some sort of job in the meat the meat cycle whether whether you're raising the animal or you're you know you're working in the plant or or some some job in in between or you know say like a leather factory you know that that used to be a huge thing where the used to just have the slaughterhouses. They they'd kill the animal and skin it, and then you then you'd send it to the butcher. Um, <clears throat> and then you also had the guys that took the hides and they they made leather products. And then that that all kind of came became consolidated and vertically integrated. But I think anything around food and guns here in the next uh, probably 
I don't know how many years, but for the foreseeable future, that that probably be a pretty safe industry to be involved in because we're going to need a lot of it. Um, but anyhow, I'm going to this next episode. We'll uh, we'll cover some of the very early days, probably from the the founding uh, of the country as colonies, all the way up to say uh, civil war, and, and shortly after that'll be the next episode and. Um, and then we get into the, the real meat of the, uh, of the meatpacking industry. Once, once the labor movement gets involved in, uh, and we hit the, we hit our stride in the Gilded Age, that's going to be a fun one. But, um, in the meantime, that's going to take a little bit to research. Uh, I, I think it is good to recognize as, uh, whether you cowboy for a living, whether you raise cattle or you just take care of them, it is a, is a good thing to note that as big of a, bunch of bastards these packers are um and how they're gonna try to to just gut you at every chance uh and and get one over you it still is symbiotic relationship we gotta have them they gotta have us and it's kind of it's kind of like they'll when when they they finally realized in the 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 cold war that the soviet union wasn't going anywhere and we're just gonna have to learn to live together it's kind of how I feel about the the packing industry. So, um, as much as we hate them, I don't want to run a damn packing plant. So, we got to figure out how to how, how to how to make that that relationship as good as possible. So, anyways, maybe it'll uh, maybe I'll come up with some ideas that won't amount to shit. But um, it's always good to look into this stuff and. Uh, and and I guess more than anything, learn what you don't actually know. You know, sometimes you you only know what you know, and then the more you the more you look into something, you realize how much you don't know, and then uh, then you can start looking into like how do you make that better. So, anyways, hope that all made sense. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Thanks again for uh, for tuning in. We had some good numbers this past week. So uh, any anybody new to the show, welcome and. Uh, Enjoy the shit show. If you're not already signed up, please go to patreon.com slash burning daylight. It's the best way to support the show. That and uh, go to bubsnaturals.com. If you got, uh, if you like collagen, you like MCT oil, and uh, they've got a bunch of other uh, supplements that are good for you, all natural stuff, good company, gives back to charity, and they also pay me pretty decent when you buy stuff. So head over there. Uh, bubsnaturals.com uh, promo code burning daylight gets you 20% off so uh, check that out and um, move your ass we're burning daylight you rise up in the morning beneath the stars so bright Pull your hat down, make sure your cinch is tight. Horses kind of snuffy, cold chill up your spine. We'll get your ass moving, sun will burn daylight. Burning
just to gather and you won't catch them all but when you ride through the gate make sure you sit up tall i can see the horizon it's looking pretty bright we'll get your ass moving sun we're burning daylight Tell the job's done right 